Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this episode of Word, National Haiku Writing Month continues, and so does KJZZ's annual haiku writing contest. Our theme this year is things that bring you hope or joy. What really makes a great haiku is the haiku that speaks to you. Plus, we're about a month out from this year's Tucson Festival of Books, and we'll talk to one of its panelists who launches her new crime thriller in March as well. It's really hard to be a crime writer who's a person of color because we don't get published as much as our um, white counterparts and we don't get as much promotion. We don't get in readers' hands. But first, Dina Goldstein is a Scottsdale-based multimedia artist and writer with a new father-daughter memoir entitled OK Little Bird. The book shares her unique relationship with her cowboy father and was written as a reaction to his end of life. The title comes from a nickname her father had never used until that point. When we caught up recently to talk, I asked if she had any idea why he did so just before he passed away. I really don't. My sister has a theory. You know, I gave him a long time ago a a little token for his pocket. It was a little bluebird, supposed to be a bluebird of joy. And he carried it everywhere. I didn't find that out till later. And she said, you know, I wonder if that's not what that is. But I don't know. I just think it was one of those moments when I went to visit him. He was in the group home. It was during the pandemic. We had the blessing that he had a a private patio. We were allowed to kind of look at him in. But I went I went to go visit him. And rather than me waving, uh, which is what everyone else was doing, he somehow was able to get out of bed with the help of the nurse, which he previously wasn't able to do got in the transport chair and came to the window for probably, if it was three minutes, that's probably a long estimate. And after a very brief uh, exchange, he just kind of whispered, you know, okay, little bird, you know, like it's time to go, you know, and it just on so many levels, it resonated. And that's, that's just when things started with this book. Well, that aside is an echo of the book entirely, I think. It's a deeply moving and inspirational account of this special bond that you share with your father. And you've described so aptly, I think, what many folks have gone through during this pandemic with you know, loved ones that are aging or sadly dying, in your case, and not being able to see them at end of life. How do you transform, transmogrify that pain into a work like this? You know, it's it's such a great point, Tom, because I am one story in a million of so many people who can't get to their loved one. They're isolated and they're trying to figure out how to stay connected. But if you have somebody that's having health challenges, you know, technology gets difficult. If there's not cognitively intact, the technology is really not an option. So You know, we had to get creative. I would drop off snacks. My sister would drop off snacks and things that he liked. You know, I would call and sometimes the nurse was able to hold up the phone. We were able to FaceTime a little bit. And this particular time was one of my last, well, prior to being with him when he passed was the last true, you know, type visit. But uh, it was challenging and he didn't even have COVID. And, you know, a lot of people who have loved ones who are dealing with whether it's, you know, they're aging and it's just part of life or they're navigating COVID, the isolation is very challenging. And I would just say, 
you got to be an out of the box thinker because you had creative right. times call for creative measures. So hang in there, whether you're holding up a poster, visiting outside, dropping something off, it's letting them know you're thinking about them. I, I would mail cards too. I'm curious because of the title, did you have a different relationship with your dad than your other siblings? I did. You know, everyone had a great relationship with them. I just had a very unique one. I was kind of an impish kid. And, you know, I was kind of fearless and that I would just kind of get in his face when he was very <laughs> stern, you know, and, um, and they would kind of look on horrified, like I was poking the tiger, which I was, you know, I'm the youngest of three. So I came along at a time where I think my dad was just ready to play. And I just pushed the envelope with him. I would crack jokes and I was able to really get to his softer side. And we just were so close. And as our relationship evolved and I moved out here and, and his health declined, he allowed me to just be with him in that space, which was, you know, he wasn't doing well. Um, and oftentimes right. that would just be quiet time together. But we, we just had this story that I had to tell. It's funny and irreverent. And he was, he was an unfiltered guy sometimes. And if you kind of understood the upbringing that he came from, you would understand that he just he just liked to crack jokes and have fun. Where did he come from? And I read that you have done some stand-up comedy in your own right. I mean, was there that bond of humor? Yeah. He Well, so your first question, he, he was uh, born and raised in Dubois, Pennsylvania, super small town, ultra conservative. And um, so, you know, he grew up in a very strict home and the ways of his lifestyle uh, came to roost in our house, sitting at the table. Uh, to this day, if I stick my elbows on the table during a meal, I automatically am <laughs> like, oh, not supposed to do that. Right. He was kind of a product of his environment. And then, yeah, so I dabbled in stand-up comedy years ago in Chicago. And I don't know if I got the desire to, to be funny from him. He was very witty. The funny thing is sometimes he could be kind of like Don Rickles. And if you know anything about Don Rickles' humor, it's not for the faint of heart. Right. So... <laughs> You didn't want to take anything personally. You would just kind of let things ride. He just, he was just kind of ride that way. Your story is so familiar to mine, especially that part about the different ways of treatment, because I have two siblings, one older and one younger. I'm, I understand that difference of treatment and how one parent, as they get to the last child, their parenting can be much different, for instance, than others. It kind of seems like it, just reading it, was this a book that for you was kind of quick to write, like a spontaneous overflow of emotion. Did it just pour out of you or how long had you been dealing with the idea and then writing it? So, you know, it's interesting. I've always thought about these anecdotes and these little scenarios that we get into that, you know, readers will find, whether it's me giving a bad gift or crazy dinner table conversations or what have you. I never thought about, oh, I'm going to sit down and, you know, kind of keep a journal of these things and one day put them down. It just the decline in his health in some of the situations that I found myself in were so delicate and things that I had never navigated that it seemed like the perfect time to put out the story weaving in what ended up happening. So, you know, the, the book takes you from the present to the past because, you know, for those people who have dealt with loved ones who are in the hospice journey in that transitional period, you find yourself with a lot of quiet time, you're with them, but they're not present really. And you find yourself reflecting back. And so the book goes forward and back and forward and back. And it wasn't till the very end of his life, about four weeks before that, after I had this incident with, you know, this okay little bird, 
I w- actually, the day before he died, I was sitting next to him and he was in a group home under hospice supervision. And I just found myself thinking and I opened my phone up and I just started, you know, writing. And you know what? A year and a half later, I lifted my head. I never stopped writing. So it did pour out of me. There was so much to tell and so much of it was uplifting. And even during the darkest times, I always tell people there's joy to be found in darkness. And we had really close moments and we had moments that were uncomfortable and you just sort of roll through it. And that's basically how Little Bird was born. Dina, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and sharing your story and a little bit about your father's story. The book is called OK, Little Bird. Dina Goldstein is the author. Thanks, Dina. Oh, I appreciate it, Tom. Thanks so much. You can find out a bit more about Dina Goldstein on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up next, the co-owner of a coffee shop bookstore in Tucson joins us and even drops a haiku. I'm Tom Maxinon. And you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. The annual KJZZ Haiku Writing Contest is underway. A haiku is a short poem made up of 17 syllables and three lines. Trials for life. Hormones, shots, tears, loss. After years of hopelessness, baby on the way. Submit your haiku that answers things that bring you hope or joy. Visit haiku.kjzz.org for details. You can get a world-class education without having to leave home. Rio Salado College offers affordable online classes, certificates, and degree programs, award-winning faculty, and flexible scheduling options. Classes start most Mondays. More information at riosalado.edu. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our next guest co-owns Revolutionary Grounds Books and Coffee in Tucson and also dabbles in haiku. Joy Solaire and her husband started the business in a different location several years ago, but had to move when their former landlord raised the rent. Like so many small businesses, they've been hit hard by the pandemic, and that's where we began our recent discussion. We got moved out of our space. They, they wanted to put in another coffee shop in 2018. And so we had to move kind of suddenly and we couldn't find another space for a while. And then we finally signed the lease here where we are now in 2019 and um, got a contractor and everything ready to go. And then the whole world shut down for COVID and we were not able to open until 2021. That's just what I was going to ask. I had no idea how close it was in terms of opening. And then, of course, COVID hit and shut everything down. So you didn't open until 2021. But we've been going back and forth, you know, with various outbreaks. Have you been able to keep your head above water, so to speak? Well, we've closed a few times. We've done only outdoor seating quite a bit. We have very limited indoor seating right now. And sometimes we've not had anybody available to work because of outbreaks or family illness or childcare struggles, but we're open. And I don't know about head above water. It's hard to say. We're, we're pretty deep in debt. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, that's the case with a lot of small businesses who don't, they don't have the liquidity of being a major chain. Right. It's just us. So it's our second mortgage on the house and some friends who lent us money and we're just kind of swimming in debt. So we can't really afford to go under. 
Well, for those who are in Tucson listening to this, I can't imagine many of them who listen to this program don't know about Revolutionary Grounds Books and Coffee. But for those folks who maybe only go to Tucson occasionally or who are listening to this podcast from outside of the state and plan a trip here at some point, how would you describe Revolutionary Grounds Books and Coffee and what types of books do you stock? We're a left political space. So our books span the left political spectrum from sort of general liberal to very far left. The whole thing needs to go start over and everything in between. And then we have a significant section of kids books. We have poetry and a a smattering of local authors as folks have come and asked us to carry their books. And then we um, host a lot of meetings and groups here. One of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you is because I found out through a mutual connection that you have a love of haiku, and of course you sell poetry there. I wondered uh, if you'd tell me a little bit what you like about the art of haiku, and I understand that you practice it yourself. I love haiku. I love the vast amount of imagery and feeling that can fit in a very small space. I enjoy reading haiku, and I, I used to just randomly here and there write things down, but I really started writing haiku as a form of self-defense. Oh, wow. Tell me more about that. I am an elder care provider. I take care of my mom, my aunt, who actually just passed away a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, Yeah. And my dad, who passed away in 2019, right before everything shut down. And I started writing haiku. I called it elder care haiku, just to say things that I couldn't say. Right. Just to spit out the feelings that I had and get them out of me. So they wouldn't be running around in my head and making me crazy. Do you happen to have a haiku you might share with us? I have many hundreds. I have one that I just wrote. It's called Maggie. It's from my Aunt Maggie who just passed away because I found her poetry that she wrote. And I'm going through it with the intention of publishing some of it. And so I wrote this and I'll read it to you. Your poems leave me bleeding on the page and I miss you even more. It's such a nice sentiment. And was it a revelation to you to find her poetry? Did you know that she wrote poetry? She's given me many collections of her poetry over the years. So I had I had one book that was about three. She wrote a poem every day for a year and I had those. But I found another package of maybe a couple hundred poems that she had written that a professor of hers when she was working on a master's in divinity had bound up. And one of them was called Reasons Not to Die. Oh, wow. And it actually mentioned me in the poem. You didn't know anything about that, huh? I did not know that one. And then uh, many, many poems that she wrote while my grandmother was suffering from dementia and she would go visit her. And I really felt those as well as resonated with me as I cared for my aunt and my mom. If someone is thinking about writing haiku, In your own estimation, what makes a good haiku? I mean, obviously people write it for different reasons and they have different opinions on what makes a good haiku. I have to say, I didn't share any of my haiku with anybody for a couple of years. Up until recently, actually, a friend of mine asked if I would read at every open mic. And so I've read one at every open mic for the last year or so. But I didn't share them because I thought they weren't any good. I had somebody tell me that you can't write haiku unless it's in Japanese. Right. You can't understand haiku unless you understand whatever, whatever. I remember in college stopping, I stopped writing poetry because I was told, you know, it's not iambic pentameter. It's just words on a page. Oh, wow. 
And I think all of that is very untrue. That kind of gatekeeping of poetry doesn't help anybody and isn't true about what poetry is. And so what really makes a great haiku is the haiku that speaks to you. Well said. Joyce Allaire, who owns Revolutionary Grounds Books and Coffee, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to our audience, not only about how difficult it is to be a small business owner these days, but just sharing your creativity and a piece of your mind with us. Thanks so much, Joy. Thank you. It's been lovely. I really appreciate it. You can find out a bit more about Joyce Allaire on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up next... A panelist for the upcoming Tucson Festival of Books launches her latest crime thriller next month, and we'll talk to her about it and the genre. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. KJZZ is investigating your questions as part of a reporting project called Q&AZ. Like any landmark, the origin of Silly Mountain's name has many different stories. Arizona has probably some of the widest temperature swings. The building materials expand and contract significantly. In addition to durability, Concrete Block provides homes with more privacy and insulation than competitors. You can ask a question at qaz.kjzz.org get a lot of things delivered these days and now that includes the latest Arizona news from KJZZ's Sun Up podcast. I'm Phil Latzman. Everything you need to know to start each day delivered to you in this handy little podcast. Go to kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts and download KJZZ's Sun Up today. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxinon. Our final guest is a panelist for the upcoming Tucson Festival of Books. March 12 through 13, on the University of Arizona campus. She launches her latest crime thriller, Like a Sister, next month as well. Kelly Garrett serves on the National Board of Directors for Sisters in Crime and also co-founded Crime Writers of Color in 2018. That's where we began our recent discussion. Sisters in Crime is an organization that was founded in the 80s by Sarah Presky and a bunch of other amazing women crime writers. And the mission of the organization is to further the experience and everything of women who are crime writers or who love crime fiction. And in the 80s, now you see so many women who are published and getting so much credit, but it wasn't like that in the 80s. Right. And because of people like Sarah and all the other initial co-founders, it's even international. And of course, you don't have to be a woman. You can be a man. You can be non-binary. You can be whatever to join. But the mission is still to kind of further the experience and also just the shine of women crime writers. I enjoyed Sisters in Crime so much that I was like, we need to have something similar for crime writers of color because we're in a similar situation where we don't get the shine or the experience, it's, it's really hard to be a crime writer who's a person of color because we don't get published as much as as our um, white counterparts and we don't, you know, get as much promotion. We don't get into readers' hands. And so I co-founded it with uh, Walter Mosley, who I think everyone should know he is. He's one of the preeminent writers, period, over the past three decades, and especially in crime fiction. And another amazing award-winning crime writer, Gigi Pondian, who actually will be in Tucson as well. We founded it in June of 2018. It was about like 30 people. We all invited people we knew. Now we have over 350 members. And it's people like Walter and Naomi Hirahara, who are legends. And then we have people who are like... I think I want to write a crime fiction novel and everyone's <laughs> awesome. welcome. They all can come and we're all equal and we celebrate each other. And we just discuss the unique challenges of being a person of color writing crime fiction today. 
not only writing crime fiction, but just being the topic, you know, the characters and the stories, right? Yeah. yeah. What is it that you like about the genre of crime and mystery in the first place? Because you have two previous novels, Hollywood Homicide, your first in 2017, and then a book that was chosen as Best Mystery, 2018, and that book was called Hollywood Ending. So Hollywood Homicide actually got named to a bunch of best lists and also got a bunch of major mystery awards. And then Hollywood Ending was nominated and it was actually on the Today Show. And I think, you know what it is, Tom, I'm just super nosy. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> and I like, you know, and I think the great thing about crime fiction is that usually at the end, the bad guy gets caught. So there is right. a happy ending. Of course, they put you through a lot to get to that point and people have to die. But at the end, usually the bad guy gets called. And there's something just super satisfying that reading a book and knowing I'm going to be taken on this journey, but I know at the end, all will be right in this world because, you know, that's not how real life works. So it's nice to have that kind of that moment. Um, So I think that's why I've always loved it. But on the flip side, I have a very overactive imagination. And so I can't read like really dark crime fiction because I would just never be able to sleep. I can't write it because it takes forever to write a book and I don't want to be spending like, you know, a month trying to torture somebody. So I tend to go towards the lighter mysteries, like the cozy amateur detective novels, lighter domestic suspense. And I tend to also write that. So like my series are both really kind of funny beach reads. And then even this new one, which is out in March, even though it's a heavier book and it's not meant to be super funny, it still has a lot of humor and sarcasm in it. I want to talk about that book here in just a sec, but I'm curious because of your prior stint working on the CBS drama Cold Case, mm-hmm. writing for television is much different than writing a novel. I mean, first of all, you're writing for the hook for the commercial break in, in one right. case, and then just the style is obviously different. What did you have to adjust maybe in kind of like your writing mechanics or just the way that you approach things in terms of moving from that place to where you are now in writing novels? It's funny because you're, I'm glad that you pointed that out because the act out is so key to TV and I do a chapter out. I try to end my chapters on a high point. I think because TV is so um, plot driven and like every scene has to count and you have to get to it. My plots sometimes I think move too fast. I have to kind of take a moment to um, like, okay, calm down, Kelly. You know, like it doesn't have to get to that next beat that quickly. You know, like you can have a moment. They can breathe. You can breathe. And I think the other thing is I'm really bad at writing description. Like people will be like, I have no clue what this room looks like. I have no clue what this person looks like. And I'm like, it's a couch. Like what you want me to describe what the couch looks like? You know, so I have to make an effort to describe things in my books because in, you know, in screenwriting, it doesn't matter because they can see it. Right. Sure, so. sure. Well, and uh, the other thing I might say too, is this is not the Victorian era any longer. So you know, you have pages and pages of exposition about what it looks like in the room or whatnot. Your latest novel, Like a Sister, it's an interesting premise. Maybe you could set it up for us and give us a little bit of an idea about the main character. I got the idea from a, a news headline about a pregnant reality star found dead in the Bronx with cocaine and no pants on. And I just thought that headline was so disrespectful. It was about this black reality star, but also I was just really fascinated by the idea of how did this glamorous reality star go from partying it up in downtown Manhattan, which is like the epitome of glamor and just like sexiness to dying by herself on a street corner 
of an overdose in the Bronx. And obviously the book is not based on the actual case, but just that idea of it. And so I was like, how did she get there? And I couldn't figure it out for a long time. And then one day I was walking back from work. I got grilled cheese and I said, oh, she went to see her estranged sister and never made it. And so that's the book that is told from the POV of the estranged sister, Lena Scott, where she knows her sister. They haven't spoken in two years. And she knows, obviously, my sister was coming to see me. So what did she want and why didn't she make it? And so the guilt of the fact she wasn't there for her sister when she needed her kind of drives her throughout the entire book. But it's a fun, sexy book. The dad's a hip hop mogul. So there's a lot of um, music stuff in there, a lot of fun, very modern things in that book. And then because of that main character, hence the title, Like a Sister, but she doesn't have mm-hmm. like, I mean, I guess she's kind of like amateur detective-ish, right? She doesn't have a professional background. No, she's just a grad student who's just trying to figure out what happened to her sister and kind of driven by that. You know, it's kind of foolish, the idea of like doing that, but she's so driven by what happened and wanting to know in that guilt. And I don't want to spoil it for folks, but can you give us a little bit of hint? Like, what are some of the dangers that she encounters? When you're trying to say to someone, like, did you kill my sister? I think that puts you in danger of confronting people, especially if one of them actually did kill the sister. Like, they're going to want to keep that quiet, you know? So she has to go behind the scenes of a concert. She has to go to, like, this small town in Pennsylvania with not a lot of Black people in it. And she's just being nosy. And so that's kind of the danger. And then she finds out someone's been following her and she doesn't know why. So there's a lot going on for poor Lena. I put her through a lot of stuff. Like a Sister is the latest novel by Kelly Garrett, and it's coming out in March. And if you have occasion, she'll be at the Tucson Festival of Books, March 12th through 13th. Kelly, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word. I appreciate your time. I enjoyed our conversation, Tom. You can find out a bit more about Kelly Garrett on our website, word.kjzz.org. While you're there, don't forget to enter KJZZ's annual haiku writing contest, which is open until February 25th at noon. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks for listening. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.